You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Alright, here we are, part three of five. We might just call this the Munro Hardy podcast. <laughs> no, no, we love it and very grateful to have Munro share his time and his wild tales with us, especially as he is an insanely busy person. So to get him to sit down twice so far and hopefully two more times to get the rest of his story out is definitely a privilege that we recognise. Anyway, this is... As wild as part two, uh, what can I say? Munro just gets a lot of stuff done and always likes to put himself in some sort of danger. Bless his cotton socks. So have a listen and let us know what you think. And hopefully in a couple of weeks, we'll have the final parts four and five for you. As you'll hear in just a moment, this episode quite literally picks up from where we left off in part two. So if you haven't heard part two, what are you doing? You have to listen in order, guys. So go back and listen to that one first. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know what you're getting at. I just, um, I'm not going to lie. This whole Egyptian story has thrown me off because I'm like, I just want to do a whole episode. That was amazing. Not amazing, bad, horrible experience, traumatic, but what a yarn. Yeah. Um, well, other types of boats, he just prompted me on something. Um, I remember after school when I was told, no, I can't be a pilot. I need to go and do ag and whatnot. And I wasn't entirely sold on that. I wasn't entirely hooked on going to uni to do agri or ag science. It was at the time that I converted into ag business. And someone told me once, to write down everything that you're interested in, put it in a list, and then go and have a look, go and tick them off one by one. Um, and I had mates down south who had been up north and who were working as pearl divers, and that made it on the list. I thought, oh, that'd be interesting to go and have a look at. Um, and of course, I worked past Paley. Um, Tony Searle was managing up there at, at Melaleuca at the time, and I, I picked his brains about how it works between the cattle stations and their pearl farming and their opportunities between the two. And, you know, is it, worthwhile going to have a look at the the pearling industry and he said absolutely mate it's really interesting is that who owned malaluca at the time yes yeah oh okay right. i was yeah. gonna say because i know paspaley do own a few stations i wasn't i'm or the only one i can think of off the top of my head is dry river but um okay uh, yeah. so that was yep. okay so that's a good a good linkage there and you had like someone kind of within the company to yeah yeah, yeah. and tony always said he'd, he'd Sort of give me an introduction and and whatnot into the pearling side of their their business, Paspaley. And um, anyhow, at this point, I yeah, I snagged a job with them in Roebuck Bay over in Broome. And this again was another seasonal job. I thought I'll go and turn my hand at this and have a look. And it was literally chipping shells through the wet season. Um, I was land based, and we'd go out every day, basically chipping shells. So that means. All, all your pearls are in nets of six. You got six pearl shells in a, in a oh, framed yeah. net. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're tied to a rope that's submerged a meter or two 
below the surface, but it's sort of held up with floats all the way along. It's a 100-meter-long rope with probably 100 panels attached and dangling down from that. So they're probably, I don't know, maybe four or five meters down, um, if that. Anyhow, our job was then to go and pick up that main line and we'd attach that onto this pulley system on the side of the boat um, and then we could grab the panels that held the pearl shells bring them onto the boat, and we were literally cleaning barnacles and seaweed off it. Chip, 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 clean it off, back in the water, next one up, chip, chip, chip. Oh, what is that? Why do you have to clean that stuff off? Does it stop the pearl from growing on the inside or? Yeah, it just sort of chokes up the shell. So they've actually got a almost like a mouth on the side of the shell, and if that chokes up with barnacles and seaweed, they, they can't get the nutrients that they need out oh, of the water. Oh, because the shell is a living thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, she has yeah. lived two years so ago. I like- know a lot about pearls, obviously. Anti-fouling a boat nearly. Although we don't <laughs> like, yeah. Well, actually, you, like you know, like you think I know what that is. Okay, but you know, like, yeah, you've got to clean. So stuff you can coat it. your shelves in a wax so that then the seaweed and the shelves, the, oh, the barnacles, find okay. it harder to attach, and yeah. and you get a, a longer period before. So you- did you do? Do you coat the shelves in something, or do you just continuously clean them? Uh, continuously clean them. I think some pearl farms will coat them in wax. You can yeah. dip them in. It's a. It's got a low melting point that wax, and it sticks yeah. to them. And then back in the water, it might give you an extra few months. Bizarre. How long would you go out on the boat for at a time? Oh, they're twelve-hour shifts. Oh, okay. But so not like it's not like going out to sea for three weeks or a month or anything. It's no. We back we on did dry land. Three week swings through the wet season. Okay. Oh, we could probably narrow down what year that was because there was a cyclone, but I can't remember what name the cyclone had. Um, but we worked right up until it hit and it was terrifying. Remember the day, might have been the day before it hit, but the weather was insane. This massive fog rolled through and then the swell really started to pick up and we were hanging on these lines and chipping and we were locked onto one line and the swell was just getting far too big. There was lightning everywhere around us. I don't know how it didn't hit the boat. It was. It looked like it was cracking on the swell as it was rolling over in front of us. Um, there were white caps crashing onto the boat, and I just thought, at what point? When do we pull up? We've got to get out of here, surely. This cyclone's about to hit, and when we finally snapped off a line and something went twang, um, the boat just rolled and rocked, and water going everywhere, and it was hard to hang on. That's when the skipper was like, okay, maybe we go back now. Um, How far offshore is this? Oh, I think those lines weren't all that far, like a couple of miles maybe from- That's far enough. It's not like you can swim back to shore. Far enough, yeah. And and heading back in, it was so rough and windy. Cyclone could have been hitting that night, I can't remember. But we then had to go and bunker down and tie down the boats- to prepare for this cyclone. So we had ropes running from the bow and stern lines either side. We, we drove right up into this mangrove creek, right into the mangroves, and had to stretch lines across the boat everywhere to try and hold it upright and stop it from turning over when the cyclone hits. And then we got in little dinghies and, and back to the wharf and back to town and, and hunkered down for a few days. Did you have to get out in the mangroves and, like, walk around? Oh, yeah, yeah, knee-deep sure. in mud, yeah. It was I mean, I'm trying to think. Are they in the wet season? I'm guess, yeah, because they'd be active. Were they crop? There would have been like that's like crop, like habitat is a mangrove. Like yeah, yeah. I, I think at that point the crocs wouldn't be too active. They'd be hungering down themselves. I think yeah, hungering down, bunkering down. I don't know, but I'm just. It's 
all these adventures of yours up north from the last episode and this episode, you just keep seeming to find yourself in like some precarious situations. And the one time you go down south, I mean, did anything dangerous happen at the vineyard? No, sounds like it was a good safe place for you. And I'm like, he just keeps getting drawn back to these very precarious situations. Seems that way. I'm trying to think, but no, I think you're right. Down south was pretty safe. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Um, for anyone listening, there's plenty of safe stuff to do up north. Like it's okay. You can still come. <laughs> Don't let this turn you off. Um, how long did you last pearling for? Like, did you, was it something? So by when you said you're working on swings, um, I just think anything that is a swing, like works on swings doesn't ever really feel like something that's a long term. I guess mining is though, but like a long term career. Like, would you, is that something you're like, oh, I could do this? Or were you like, oh, it's just another adventure. I'm interested. I know a bit about pearls now. And, you know, um, it was another adventure. I had actually wanted to get into diving because I'd, I'd done a lot of diving down south. So, what are they? If if you just pulled the pearls up, or sorry, the shells, do you call them shells or pearls or what do you call them? Shells, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And clean them and stuff. What do the actual pearl divers do? Well, they're getting wild pearl shells. Oh. Yeah, that are then brought back to the farm and, and farmed over a period of time. Okay. Um, so, they're literally dragging behind a boat on a big long line underwater. They might be, I don't know, 20 metres deep, say, but they can be underwater for 12 hours a day. It's huge really? days. Yeah, and they just have a um, a neck bag and they're going along scooping pearl shell in. I'd get hungry, um, but at least it wouldn't matter if you needed to go to the toilet. Yeah, well, there's so much of it safety focused because – of nitrogen build up in your system yeah. and you know being careful the about the bends and, and all that type of thing. So they've got to decompress and you know only spend so much time underwater down deep. But I wonder how dehydrated you'd get. Obviously, you're in water, but it's os- you know osmosis, whatever. You're in salty water. You're peeing, but you're not really replacing that water. I wonder how that. Anyway, we'll, we'll have to have a pearl person on the podcast one day. It'd be interesting. Yeah. So, did you ever get to go diving? No, I didn't. No, no, no. It was something I wanted to do. But then, of course, you know, you have to do your time through the system and you got to work on the farms and do your chipping. And it mightn't be the case now, but that was that was the option in front of me was to spend, you know, 12 months on the farm chipping shells and, and maybe get into some transport and then eventually work your way into diving, which wasn't really, I think, once I got into it and started looking at it, wasn't the career path I wanted. So, it wasn't really hanging around for that. And yeah, that was a wet season job, and by then first round muster was ready to kick off, and so back I went, back to the territory and cattle industry. Like I said earlier, the ping pong of back, forth, back, forth, cattle, not cattle, not cattle, cattle. Um, another thing you mentioned off air earlier, another off uh, outside of cattle industry job you had is, and it was outside of agriculture as well, was roadworks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that um, that was another seasonal thing over another wet season. Um, I think that was after Ban Ban. It was, yeah. Um, yeah, Ban Ban was thirty k's down the road from a pub, Grove Hill Pub, mm-hmm. which is one of the most iconic, remote, awesome pubs I've ever been to. I remember when I first got to Ban Ban, um, I saw the signs to this historic. Heritage Hotel, I think it was. And so I thought I'd go down the road and go and check that out and wandered in there and it's somewhere that looks like it was operating in the 1930s and it probably actually was when it was established for the the mining days when the miners were through the hills down there. And 
anyhow, when I first saw it, I thought immediately, oh, heritage means, you know, it's heritage listed and it's an old pub that hasn't been operating for years. And it, it sort of looked that way at the time. But the door was open and I wandered in and it, it's literally a tin shed on a concrete floor full of old mining memorabilia, um, all, all local stuff. And it was just fascinating. I wandered through there for probably half an hour just wandering around the yard and looking at what was there um, and then wandered into what was the actual original bar room at the front and it was beautiful. It had nice corrugated iron there and above that was a massive mahogany slab, big thick timber bar and looked beyond that and there was a whole wall illuminated, clear glass. It was a, a fridge full of beer operating, plugged in, lights on, and I thought it'd be buggered. This pub's still operating. There's someone still here. There was no one to be seen, but it was an operating pub. Anyway, 10 minutes later, Stan rocked in and introduced himself, said, how are you going, mate? And he sat down on his side of the bar. I sat down on my side of the bar and had a beer, and, and that was the local pub. It was just one of those things that, you know, it's, you don't see that very often anymore, I think. Um, but that's where I met a fella called Grant Angel, who was from Mataranka and he's done a lot of work through the Territory over the, over the decades, um, very well-known fella. Um, and he was looking after a lot of the mining roads around that area um, from Cosmo to Brocks Creek and a few in between. And so every now and then I'd catch up with him at the pub and have a beer and he would sort of give me nudge every now and then. He'd say, what are you doing after this season going into next year? And I didn't know. I didn't have a plan. It just so happened through that wet that he offered me a job and I jumped on board and learned how to, um, yeah, I've been operating machinery on, on cattle stations and grading roads and whatnot, but this was sort of taking that next step and getting to final trim grader work and, and using water carts and rollers and learning how to form roads and, and do that type of thing. So it was really interesting. And um, valuable. like Yeah, take that now to a cattle station. I mean, we're patching up a lot of road out at, at Carbine and it's that experience that I've learned to apply there now. Um so that's, that's been hugely valuable. Um, but yeah, probably spent again, whatever that wet season was with him, which then led on to a job mining because then I had a bit of experience on, yeah, final trim with graders, loaders on the heavy earth moving gear, um, driving trucks then. And so that was something I wanted to do because I still had on my list helicopter pilot yet to be ticked. And it was top of the list. It's what I really wanted to do, but needed to save the money to do it. New mining paid good money. And so, yeah, took a job at, at Cosmo, which is near Hayes Creek, between Hayes Creek and Little River. So, the actually, I always pass that sign on the highway because it's just interesting because it's called Cosmo. Cosmo just makes you stop and look. Yep. The, this work at Bam Bam and then the, the roadworks, that would have been after. Authentic. I love it. That would have been – that was all post-Europe and Egypt and everything, wasn't it? And post the winery. Ban Ban? Yeah. And all the roadworks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would yeah. Have been. yeah. Yeah. So, I just – I guess pe- – I mean, people will know if they listen to the podcast. So, if I make a point, I like to make it like 10 times. But the idea of, you know, going down south to settle down and then you come up north – that it was also interesting that, you know, like I guess this – and it still exists today very much so, like the, the societal pressures of, no, you've got to – if you're a certain age and you can only go and have so much of a gap year or a gap life, whatever, before you have to settle down. I mean, I literally only started doing that last year when I bought a house at 33. So, I love that you have – you know, I don't know where that 
thought for you came from that you know you know oh it's time to figure out what am I doing north south fun serious whatever but that you've come up and you've you still kind of kept on this adventure but everything you've done has just given you such a wealth of experience like life experience the people you've met the different industries you've been in the understanding and appreciation because let's say you're not going to ever work in pearling long term but you might have learned something about logistics or weather or who knows like and then this roadworks thing like i think also there can be a bit of a mindset around well well i'm interested in in the cattle industry or, or whatever industry you're in I've got to just keep looking for jobs within that, but this is completely nothing to do with cattle. It's roadworks. So I, I, but I think that's really valuable to step outside the industry and work in other industries and do things. And, you know, you might not see where it's going to come back into your life later on and it might never, but like you said, right now it's kind of come back and it's really you're reaping it has the, totally. the benefits of that. Yeah. There's so many little gold nuggets that you pick up at, at places along the way. Yeah. Um, and for me, I guess, you know, I've, I've mentioned some of those stories when I was a young fellow and probably quite naive and shy and, you know, you, you're told if someone asks you to jump, you you ask how high and you do that. And if someone asks you to open a gate, you run to it and you just, you do what you're told or what you're asked in in your early days, I think. Uh, and then you get a bit of nouse about you and a bit more confidence and, and start to question some things about why we're doing things the way we do. And I've particularly picked up that sort of questioning mindset from these other jobs, stepping out of the industry, mining, for example, they are massive on safety now and have to be. You know, you've got your, your high-vis stuff for a start. Like, you immediately see safety-conscious culture all around you as soon as you get into that mine site. Your inductions are days and days long. Um, every job you do, you've got to stop. You've got to take five. Think about your job. Think about what the risks are. And you talk about it as a group of people. Um, you do your JSEAs, your swims, and of course, everyone on the job, buddy, hates doing it. And they, yeah, oh God, we've got to do bloody paperwork all the time. But it's, it's hugely valuable. Like you joke about it at the time, why are you doing this and, and whatnot? But it actually, instead of just launching into a job, you sit back and you reflect on it and you talk about it and you identify hazards and risks. And that's something that I've seen everywhere else through, through, industry that I've worked. So in cattle operations, farming operations, we're doers, you know, we just get the job done. And I think culturally we've got that mindset where we just want to go, 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 get the job yeah. done. But And oh, if you, you, common sense should be enough to keep you safe, like yeah, not necessarily. No, no. And particularly up here because we're so transient, we're dealing with new people every year who mm. a lot of the time are new to the industry, entirely new. And so – we have to go through those processes with them rather than just throwing them in the deep end. Sit down, do your inductions, take them seriously and walk through jobs, walk around the workshop, show them the tools they'll be using, show them PPE, signage, all of that stuff is incredibly important. Might not be cool at the time, but when you're 30 and your knees are shot and you've got bad hearing, like you'll wish that you were a little bit uncool when you were 18 or 20 and had worn like, you know, the amount of people I see that like, don't wear the right stuff, say welding. And I'm like, okay, that's your eyesight. Like, please put on the welding goggles, like flash burner, you know, you know, just as an example. I but- didn't wear sunnies for years. Oh, well, actually, everyone. So I was discussing, um, with Munro's partner today, a problem I have with my partner, who's also a helicopter pilot, as, as Munro is. And 
the issues I have getting him to wear sunscreen regularly and consistently. Mm. And Grace did mention that when you went out the other day, uh, mustering, you did a job, you came home very burnt. And you had also not worn sunscreen. I did. Look, I hadn't done a mustering job for a long time and I probably wasn't thinking about all the things that I used to. I I did pull up halfway through the day thinking, oh, God, I'm getting cooked here. I forgot how badly burnt you get doing this. Um, and I pulled out my, my flight bag that I had with me and inside there I had an old tube of zinc from I think I bought it the first year I went to Helimuster. So it's, oh, I don't know, six years old now probably this tube of zinc. Anyway, I squeezed some out and it completely separated the white yeah. from this clear stuff and I couldn't mix it up and I thought, oh, is this going to work or not? And I actually think it was like putting on a, a tanning oil or something because it was completely <laughs> clear oil that I put on my face and it did not work. Ooh. I came home roasted. Yes, so uh, sunscreen. Yep. Yeah, just basic things like that. Yeah. So, But what I'm what I'm getting from and what I hope our listeners are picking up from your episode is that you don't have to do things in a certain order or for a certain period of time or, you know, at the end of the day, throughout all these years of you, you know, doing seasonal work here and then bits and pieces here, there, everywhere, you know, you might have been like, oh, I'm in my, I don't know, you're probably in your early 20s or whatever by the time you're on a roadworks and you're probably like, and, you know, you'd already had that thought of I've got to knuckle down and start settling down and what am I going to do? Am I going to go to uni, brah, rah? And then you find yourself working on roadworks and you're probably like, what the hell? Like... At least, yeah, I don't know, that's just my assumption. But all that time, if you're a good person, you're paying your taxes and you're not, like, having a negative impact on anyone else's life, like, who cares? Because it all buffs out at the end. Like, now you're 35, you're a bloody Nuffield scholar, you've got a huge, like, by the time we get to episode four, guys, huge business, like, that you've you've partnered into and stuff. Like, it – and, I mean, you could have gone – uni and then what you at the corporate ladder or whatever and blah blah and maybe got to where you are now but yeah it's not a it's, it doesn't always have to be linear and that's what I'm really enjoying about your episodes is that because it, it's very reflective of my journey as well like doing bits and pieces everywhere and at one point in time I didn't stay anywhere longer than six weeks because I was like oh but I want to try this and I want to try that and because I wasn't from ag so I was like oh I want to try cropping I want to try cattle or oh, I'll try sheep like oh yeah I'll go on an abattoir like whatever like and you don't have to. And then at some point you're like, oh, my God, I'm like in my late 20s. What am I doing with my life? But it all buffs out in the end. Like It does. Yeah, it seems to. It seems to all work out. All yeah. that experience, I suppose, cultivates new things. And, and I think, well, for me, it, it's illuminated my passions and it's allowed me to understand what I am really passionate about and have su- such a, a broad experience through the, not only the cattle industry but in all those weird and wonderful areas I've worked is, you know, I've got something from everything that I've done. And for me, it's been a journey of learning everywhere I go. But for such a long time, there was never a specific focus on one thing, but taking little bits and pieces from everywhere I've done has been able, well, it's allowed me to consolidate those learnings now, understand what I'm really passionate about, um, opportunities I see here in the cattle industry, in the territory. Um, and, and I can, focus all of those learnings into what we're doing now, which is, it's exciting. It's It's been a busy start. It's already been a busy 12 months. Part four, everyone, part four. Um, just to put in the token corny quote for the episode, as Steve, one of my favourite quotes from Steve Jobs is, you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking back. 
So, like, at the time, you might not see how it all connects together and makes sense. But oh, looking see, back yeah. now, you can see how yeah. everything you've done has led you to where you are. But at the time, you could not have predicted where you would be now. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, mining, I want to – I will let you go shortly, I promise, because it is getting dark outside. But I've got two things left on my list that we've got to talk a bit about. And you started getting into mining. Uh, and then – I'm not going to let you leave without um, telling me a little bit about. So before, guys, I'm writing some notes. Like we're trying to work out what Munro had done, and he's like, blah 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 blah. Oh, and then I went egg collecting, and my mind just went to ch- and I was like, ch- chicken eggs, and you're like, no, croc eggs. And I was like, <laughs> that makes sense, you know, like because we're in the territory, and I've also been egg collecting. But I just for some reason I was like, wow, he went and worked in like a chicken farm, like that's. <laughs> It really is varied, guys. No, okay. But the you mentioned when um, off air earlier that when you were mining, you were doing like a two-week on swing and then in your off swing, you were contracting back in the cattle industry. Like you just- Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. And was this the-, the Obviously, the, the roadworks was a great segue into mining because you had those skills, and but this is where you, I guess- where you saw the opportunity to really make some good coin to go towards that license. Yeah, well, it turned out it wasn't actually good money at all at that point. Oh, moment. really? No, it was a pretty poxy alley rate they put us on. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. I didn't I didn't actually save the money I needed well, at the, the time. That's the whole point of going mining is for money. <laughs> yeah, it was, but they called it a, like a stepping stone mine. It was a small mine at the time, small operation, um, and people would use that to get a bit of experience to continue their mining career, um. forever job, to go – into the mines where you do make money. Oh. And, you know, that wasn't really my passion. I was literally there. I was, it was a means to an end for me to pay for my chopper license. So I wasn't making a great deal of money. Uh, and mining, you know, it, I knew it wasn't for me. I literally just wanted to get there, get my paycheck, do my job, get my chopper license and finish. How long did you spend mining? 12 months there. Um, but I just, oh God, night shift. We, so we did two weeks on one week off. First week was night shift. Second week was day shift. And I, I just can't do night shift. I, if I was meant to live that life, work underground, work nocturnally, I would have been born a wombat, but. <laughs> um, it's got to be hard constantly, especially if you're one week night, one week day. My tenant downstairs is a midwife and she'll go between night and day shift within the same week, like calendar week. And I'm like, how do you, especially if you come off night shift or come off day shift and your next shift isn't until a night shift, like the next day, mm. I'm like, when do you, like, how do you readjust your sleep? Like, it's horrible. I yeah, I could do not it do it. I just, pills. I'd go my first three nights, I'd go all but without sleep. Like it would be a very broken sleep and only for an hour or two a day. Um, until you're just that exhausted that you actually just about pass out when you knock off and, and get home. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I still work. So those two weeks on, I would come home back to Darwin. I had a, a place in Darwin that I was living at at the time. I'd bring my mining gear back in a bag. I'd dump that in the washing machine, grab my next bag of clothes. And I'd typically at that point head east out towards the Mary River again. Um, and I was contracting all through that country, a lot of fencing work, um, uh, right up to the Wildman River, Carmel Plains and down Old Mount Bundy, that sort of country through there, Annabrew, um, back in the old stomping ground, Wollnamarica as well. 
Um, and you know, that sort of tired me over for that week off and a little bit more cash, but it was just me to get back to my roots and what I loved and be like back a in bit the bush. of soul food. Like yeah, it was. Yeah. Being in your happy place. Yeah. Compared to the mining where you're, where you're slogging it out and just go, go, go get your cash and let's well, get what, out. What kind of life balance did you have then? If you're doing two weeks on swing and that week off you're contracting, like when do you, go to a party or a rodeo or go up to Darwin and go to the shops or go to a doctor's point. Like when do you have time for you? Or did you just like basically head down, bum up for those 12 months? Well, that was me. My time for me was being in the bush. I loved it. You know, being in town is not me um, and wasn't at the time. I had I just didn't have that interest in being there. I need to be there. Um, That's good. So while it looks different to what it may do for other people, that was your way of 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 um having that like rest what do they call it like R&R. R&R, yeah like rest and respite recuperation no. yeah maybe or I was gonna say like rest anyway something um I can blame it on baby brain what can you blame it on <laughs> just being old yeah that'll do yeah. the whole two years older than me you are um yeah okay so a bit of R and R so that's good I- I'm glad then at least you had the that you're able to, to achieve that rather than going back to a swing in a apartment somewhere or, yeah, like in town. Um, yeah, continue on. Sorry, tell me about, I guess, you, you're probably in two very different but at the same time similar worlds because they're in the same region but two very different cultures, two very different groups of people, different jobs. Very different, yeah, very different. impacts on your psyche. Yep. Um Lots of learnings to take away, though, and it, and that's a brilliant thing about moving around is is you you just pick up little bits and pieces everywhere you go. But for me, I I recognise that straight away is not a long term career for me. It was not something I wanted to do long term. Um, and then, well, that yeah, so that was a, again pretty seasonal because oh the next wet season that's when I. Started working with crocodiles, yeah. Um, You're like, mining isn't dangerous enough for me, you know, like, you know, I better just go, you know, being out on boats in a storm or getting kidnapped in Egypt or, you know, or maybe you just had so much fun, like you said in the last episode when you went swimming and you opened your eyes and there was a crocodile there or you were fencing neck deep water in the Mary River. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I just haven't felt that sense of danger in a while. Let me go back and work with crocodiles. It was a bit like that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, had a few mates who were passionate about it, loved it, loved their stories. And I, you know, I would go out with them on the weekends and, and do all sorts of things with airboats and choppers and, and just absolutely loved the life. Um, but again, that was just a, a quick seasonal gig. Um, so did you do like a whole wet season of egg collecting? Yeah, but we were actually filming. We were doing a TV show. Well, I think everyone knows what that would be then because there's really only one lot of egg, you know, crocodile. It's one main crocodile. Yeah, part. yeah. And it was, um, well, we're more so. So if we go back and look at old episodes, will we see you? No. Oh. Only once, yeah. No, I was behind the camera. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, no, I was just, I was helping. Not pretty enough for the camera, we? No, absolutely <laughs> not. I've got a face for podcasts, I think. <laughs> Step out. You've got a voice for podcasts, but yeah, no, I, I don't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no, because remember, you were on TV earlier today. So when Munro, yeah, cheated on us with another <laughs> media organization, but that's all right. And I'm not going to hold a grudge. Just remember who's giving you the four part series. Um, and who's only giving you one episode. So uh-huh. just saying, yeah. <laughs> yes. 
what um obviously I've I've been egg collecting. We've had I wanna say it was episode sixty seven or sixty six, Normie Fisher. Jeez, you got a memory. Yeah. Oh, don't ask me many more than that. I used I used to remember all of them and now we're up to like 190 something. So I it's getting away from me a fair bit. But I want to say it was yeah, um Normie Fisher and who has has very sadly passed away now and he did an episode on crocodiles because I'd been out there collecting with him. So I kind of know how it works. If people have listened to that episode, they might kind of know how it works. But tell us from your experience what it was like. What did you actually have to do? And were there any close calls? Um, no, no, no close calls. I was, uh, oh no, I was going to say I was fairing, but I wasn't. That was later on. Um, no, this was more so the filming for the Outback Wrangler show. And yes, yeah, so I'd, I'd come in and we did a bit of work on a few different stations that had some problem crocs around that they wanted relocated. And the boys were out filming that and just, I, I suppose, sharing. What happens in that environment in that situation? Um, I had a time of my life. I loved it. It was one of those wild, adventurous things where you helicopters and airboats, crocodiles. You know, it was a young fella's dream doing that. Um, and with a great crew, it was it was fantastic. Um, but again, that was only a seasonal thing. That was a wet season, uh, and that then oh, here's another one um, led into another job in another industry. Where I, through that and through that network, I'd, I'd met a bloke who actually ran a company that was the biggest commercial interior company in the Southern Hemisphere. I, I remember at one point we would discuss Commercial this. interior company. What does that mean? Yeah. So I, like interior design. Well, this is when, funny one. This is when the, uh, the Howard Springs prison was being built mm-hmm. and this company had won a contract to do the, Interiors at the prison, so like the fit out. We yeah, we were one of the first builders. The contract is on site, so I, I worked for. I love it when you just say we. I'm like you worked in a prison, didn't you? I worked Monroe? in a prison. Yeah, yeah. Bloody hell! <laughs> Not as a screw as you, as you might think yeah. with my build. Um, <laughs> yeah, you worked in there before the prisoners got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, that was really interesting. So I I started off just as a labourer because it was good cash after the wet season. Um, mastering hadn't kicked off yet, so I was looking for something to tie me over. Uh, and literally just ripped in there to go and give them a hand because they were short of people. Um, but that actually evolved into a, a pretty good role. I was a logistics coordinator in the end um, for this company. We started off with three of us on site, I think, and we were putting battens on and top hats and framing and, and getting ready. We started with four buildings that expanded then. I think we had 70 buildings we ended up um, doing the fit-out for. Uh, we had 170 tradies on site. Working for us, um, and my role essentially was was keeping gear up to the tradie. So we had all sorts of cladding and sheeting and battens and framework that we had to keep up. All the fixing screws, plaster work, um, and distributing that between the seventy buildings that we were working on and the hundred and seventy men. Uh, and it was a, a union site. It was a, a joint venture between a couple of big companies. Um, and I don't know how many contracting businesses were on there, but um, between them all, the unions were working and coordinating people and staff and people signing up to the unions and negotiating contracts and conditions and all sorts of things. And I, I knew nothing about unions at the time, but I, I had in my head it was a negative negative type of thing. Um, 
Anyhow, we each company had to have a safety representative, um, and coming from the mines, I'd already had a bit of an introduction into safety cultures and and what that involves, um, and I knew it was pretty full on. And and my job, I was already quite busy, uh, and. Anyway, we had to have a meeting one day because we had to nominate a safety rep for our company and we used to um, have a toolbox meeting every every morning and get the tradies all around and, and we had this vote anyway for who would be the safety rep and someone nominated me. I think I was the only person nominated in the end and got unanimous, unanimously voted in as a safety rep, which I hadn't anticipated or really wanted to do. But it, it anyway, it offered opportunities to, again, see how that works between different businesses, different sites and what's involved in a building sort of project. And then there was another vote for a union representative and that I definitely didn't want to do. I was like, unions, nah, not for me, don't want to be involved in that. And someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, yes, you do, mate. It's a learning experience. Go and understand more about what happens within unions and how union meetings work and how they negotiate contracts and uh, it was a really, really interesting couple of months being able to attend those union meetings between different companies and how contracts are negotiated and how conditions are negotiated for the contractors on site, um, for the tradesmen um, and how the unions get their representation through those sites and, and how that works through the industry and different job sites. Um Fascinating insights, worthwhile doing. Does anybody else, and this is, I guess, a bit of a rhetoric question because nobody can answer me right now, find it ironic that the man who fenced in neck deep water in the Mary River swam with crocodiles in a waterhole, went on a purling boat that was in a a cyclone, got kidnapped in Egypt uh, what else have we covered? There's been a few things. I can't remember them all. There's so I many of them. I can't believe you're getting all this out of me. That he was the nominated safety rep. Like, I'm sorry. I'm just like, uh, underqualified for the job much. Like, I don't <laughs> think you're one to be promoting safety. I'm glad, obviously, you changed and evolved over the years. And I'm like, that's so ironic that, like, you've been in all these unsafe situations and the next minute, like, you evolved to be, like, promoting safety and, like, managing safety. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I suppose we spin these yarns about the, the things that I've seen, but it's not the stuff day to day that you see that actually. Yeah, exactly. Was, yeah. No, and as you said, like, what an opportunity. Like, again, people might think, oh, I'm boring or whatever. But at the end of the day, especially when you're going to end up in a role like you are now where you're a director of a company, like, you've got to be able to cover your ass. You've got to be able to tick those boxes and do those things. And same with union, because, uh, unions, like you just said, negotiating contracts. Don't ask me. I, I've heard of them. I vaguely know what they are, but um, enterprise bargaining agreements um, don't really know how they work much, but I'm guessing some contract negotiation, obviously that's a huge part of it or whatever. And so, you know, as a business, a lot of businesses have to do that these days. Where would you have had experience doing that kind of stuff beforehand if you hadn't had this random role? Like mm. there's so much stuff you'd probably, I mean, you might still have to outsource some of it um, for, you know, just to get it all ticked off properly but a lot of it you can probably be doing in-house from these experiences you've had yeah absolutely and i mean to me that led on to 
other experiences that I've had later in life that was hugely valuable to be able to take those learnings and, and negotiating and, and seeing how people work around a boardroom that me starting as a labourer working into a sort of logistics role to then be participating in meetings with the heads of these companies and contract companies around a boardroom who this is totally out of my depth. I, I thought at the time, like, who am I to be sitting at this table? We, we had thousands of men working on that site and I was able to sit around a room of probably 15 people um, who was, you know, in charge of that whole operation. It was, yeah, it was staggering. Did you, during this time working and building, did you still do the um, the uh, going back into ag and stuff? Like you were still, during all this time, still trying to like gun for your pilot's licence? I was, yeah. And so this actually was uh, was a job that did pay really good money. Um, and Jim was fantastic to me, the, the owner of the company. He looked after me really well. Um, I'd initially said that this is when Impex was kicking off. And so Impex is where I saw the opportunity to go, right, that's where I go to go and save money. And for people who are not aware, can you just... Impex is a gas plant up in Darwin that was a, a massive construction project over, I don't even know, six years, was it, that took to build that? B- b- billions of dollars, I would imagine, um, building this. Uh, and anyhow, I, I wanted to get into that. Um, was going to go work on this prison job for whatever it was through that period until I could get a job at Impex. Um, and... Jim actually offered, he said, oh, mate, whatever they're paying, I'll, I'll match it. Like, you know, you've got a pretty important role here with the logistics side of things. Were you like, one million dollars? <laughs> like Mr. <laughs> Mr. Evil? It wasn't quite that much, but it was a, a very kind offer. Um, which was, yeah, it was, it was brilliant. And so I stayed on. I, I, it was almost a, a 12 month project there. We, we got a lot of the interiors done and, and gradually we started. Phasing people out when, um, you know, we just didn't have the work to keep up to people. So we were then down to, I don't know, a, a dozen or, or 20 people left. And, um, we were doing defects in the building. So, you know, any of these skirting boards or runners or whatever that just might have something out of place. They were the small jobs that we'd just go and cover up and, and make sure they're perfect to hand over. Um, and even in my role at that point, I was sort of running out of work for my role. I felt that I was overpaid in that role for, you know, going from the logistics side of things back to the labouring basically. Um, and so one of the other supervisors there on site who was actually coordinating the whole job for the company I was working for, he said, mate, no worries, we'll back you, go to Impex, take that role there. So that's actually when I did get a job at Impex, which finally – Led me to saving the money to go and do my chopper license. I never like. I thought this episode was going to be so like I'd have written down like five dot points, and I thought I was like, these are the five main things we're going to talk about because in my mind that's how it worked. We've gotten there now. Um, the the license part was halfway through the episode that I'd planned. Now, but now obviously, as I said at the beginning, we've gone from three three parts to four parts because. By God, you fit some stuff in. So <laughs> I am going to let you go. Oh my God, it's seven o'clock. I feel so bad. Oh, it's true. Sorry. No, well, that's my fault for starting at eight o'clock this morning and yeah, you know, seven o'clock at night. I know it's almost 12 hours now since we were supposed to have started. <laughs> no, nah, it's all good. Um, technically I didn't rock up to eight 30. 
But I, uh, I'm just trying to figure out. All right, guys, if you come back for part three, we'll talk about a license. And then how many years did you spend like mustering, like helicopter mustering? Well, I actually spent a couple of years in tourism first up. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're going to have a wide range of stories from your time there. And then, and then obviously you left the territory for a while. So we can't, I guess next, next episode will probably just be a lot of these territory adventures again or wherever else you're flying. And then part four, we'll talk about when you left the territory and why you came back and all the cool stuff you're doing now. Who knows? It might be a five parter. I don't know. I don't think I can, I don't think I could like sleep at night knowing I've taken so much of your time though. Like, like you're so busy and it's enough to get an hour out of you here and there for like one episode, but it was like an hour the last time or two hours probably. It's definitely two hours. You would have almost been here now for this one. I'm kind of feeling bad. But anyway, guys, too late. Um, go comment more on Munro's Instagram if you want to hear more. Carbine at Carbine Park, um, at Munro Hardy. I That's think. it. Yep. Yep. Go tell him how much you love the episodes. Tag him and everything. Tell him you want to hear parts three and four. <laughs> He's like, oh god. Uh, okay. So to wrap up, looking back on this crazy period of your life. What would you say was the takeaway lesson? This period, I'm, I'm sort of getting mixed up between the first episode and the second episode. But, um, no, I suppose this was, uh, learnings outside the cattle industry for me and, and takeaways that I can take with me for the rest of my career, whatever I do. Um, a lot of those things I've been able to implement in what we're doing now. Um, I, I suppose in the first episode, I, I spoke of a lot of things that happened that now I wouldn't even question it. It would just be out of the question. There would be no way. But at the time, as a young fella, I think, as I mentioned, you know, you, you run to open a gate or you, you don't, uh, if someone asks you to start jumping, you just, you jump, um, launch into it. Whereas, you know, then stepping into different industries to show you a different way of doing things um, is a really valuable thing and something that we can implement in what we're doing now and all my all our operations moving forward. All right. So shall we tentatively schedule part three next week? <laughs> you know, don't go overseas. I'm pretty sure you're in town, so we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll see how hay goes. We'll let you finish. <laughs> we, yeah, we'll watch we'll let you finish your hay crop, and then we'll record part three. This is great. Munro is going to carry me through on these episodes until I have this baby. So oh. brilliant. Um, yeah, it's a shame it's a girl. I can't call him Munro. So do you know what we're having now? Huh? Do you know what you're having? Oh, yeah. Did I not tell you? No. Yeah, it's a little girl. Oh, yeah. Congrats. Or she. Awesome. She's a little girl. So I can't be like, oh, I'll name my baby after you if you give me more episodes because <laughs> I can't because we're not going to call him on her. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Thank you so much. You need food, water, and lots of sleep and some sunscreen. Sunscreen. Yes. Yes. Try that with me. Some That's an extra lesson for everyone in this episode. <laughs> See ya. Hey, right.